Now, we live in a, in a culture desperate for rest. Spiritual rest, emotional rest, and physical rest. Uh, let me begin in the last one and, and work toward the first one. Uh, we live in a, in a culture desperate for physical rest. That is, it seems like with all of the technological advances which are intended to save us time, we find ourselves busier than we've ever been. And when we finish a vacation, we're just as tired as when we began the vacation. When we go back to work on Monday, we're just as exhausted as we were when we left work on Friday. It seems like that life is like a treadmill and it's just never ending. Now, some of it is related to where a person may be or a family may be in their life setting. But it's when you've got children and they're involved in athletics and they're going to school and there's laundry to be done and meals to be cooked and, 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 uh, and all of the rest, it's a busy season of life. And yet, when you begin to talk to people, it's not that they're just physically tired, they're emotionally tired. Uh, sometimes when you look into the eyes of a person, you know their schedule is hectic and busy and, and, in some, and for some seasons that's just the way it's going to be but there's a hollowness in their lives and uh, in, in, in their eyes there just seems to be something missing something askew I was raised as you know in Titusville Florida I was raised during the height of the space program I was saved at 19 and the church I was saved in was just filled with employees from Cape Kennedy a lot of engineers, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people. My father, who was not a, a Christian when I was saved, uh, my father worked in high-pressure gas. And, and during those heightened years, I mean, men would work from 5 in the morning till 7 at night, Monday through Friday, and sometimes on, on Saturday. I worked, or uh, I didn't work with, but I, I was in a prayer group with the physician for the astronauts, the church that I was saved in, a very large church, and for a season of time in the prayer chapel, we had prayer going on 24 hours a day with anywhere from three to 10 people uh, in the prayer chapel praying together under, the, under the, the guidance of the ministerial staff. And so being a single guy, they assigned me three o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. And so at three o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings, I was in the prayer chapel with a friend and the physician to the astronauts. Uh, that man was a very busy man. And at times he would come in and there would be dark circles under his eyes as most people would have at three o'clock on a Sunday morning. But I knew he was working long hours that it was easy, 60 hours plus a week, week in and week out. But although he, he appeared to be physically tired, his, his disposition and demeanor didn't reflect that. I remember looking into, it, into his eyes as a young Christian and, and rather than seeing kind of a hollowness, an emptiness, uh, there was a sense of sparkle and vitality. And it, it was very evident when, uh, when he prayed. We live in a, in a culture that has everything the culture could provide physically 
and yet we are more emotionally tired than any, than any time than any time in maybe human history, particularly Western civilization. There's something missing. Even in, in many church people, good church people, people who are genuinely converted, they genuinely love God, they're genuinely seeking to follow God as best they can. They feel overwhelmed, they feel tired, and there is a sense of utter desperation. Not because they're raising two, three, four, five, six children, but because there's something askew in their soul. I want to suggest to you this morning that we must make time for God. We must make time to worship God. We must make time to rest in God. And we must make time to contemplate an eternal future. If you're a guest with us, we've been working our way as a church through the book of Exodus. I think when I started Exodus, I didn't expect to find all that I have discovered in the book. It's a book that reaches back into the book of Genesis. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And there are themes and ideas and concepts that are first spelled out for us in Genesis that are picked up on in Exodus. And then as we've studied Exodus, we found over and over and over again that, that Exodus is pointing us forward to the prophets, to the gospels, and even to the book of Revelation. It is a marvelous book, rich in theology, relevant in practicality. And so I want to turn our attention this morning to Exodus 23, verses 10 through 19, and talk with you on the topic, Make Time for God. The first thought that I want to present to you this morning is this. Love God by showing concern for the needy. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Now, we don't know exactly how this worked. It could very well be that for six years they, they planted and they harvested all of the land. Or it might be that each year they laid aside a portion of the land that would not be planted and would not be harvested. And, and there was some kind of rotation that they went through so that the, every seven years there was a portion of land that would not be, that would not be sowed and would not be harvested. But uh, but you see the, the thought that's laid out here. Then notice the word, so that. Underline the word, so that. So that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Notice one of the important reasons in doing this was to provide for others. I think there may be a, a weariness in Western culture, because we are an egocentric culture. We're a me-centered culture. 
that from our, our earliest days, we are taught that you've got to look out for number one. You've got to take care of yourself. And it, it works its way into the church where we begin to think about, it's about my discipleship. It's about my style of worship. It's about finding the programs that meet my needs. It's about making sure that my family is taken care of. And that wears a person down because we were not created to please ourselves. I'm not saying that all of that is insignificant, that all of that is inconsequential, that all of that is wrong, but there's something energizing, there's something freeing when we begin to look outward, when we begin to think about other people, when we begin to think about how can I care and minister and serve and help others? What can I do to help feed the those who are literally hungry, physically hungry, starving? Are there organizations that I can contribute to, gospel organizations that help feed and teach the gospel? Are there ways that I can minister and serve to keep my attention off of myself? And while it, it might not make us any less tired at the end of the week, it does something to the sparkle in our eyes. It does something to inflame our heart to know that for the glory of God, we're serving the people of God by the Spirit of God. And so Exodus begins here in chapter 23 with this thought, love God by showing concern for the needy. The second thing I want you to notice is in verse 12. We'll spend a little bit more time here. Love God by prioritizing time for worship and rest. Look in verse 12 with me. Six days you're to do your work, and on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. He's talking about the rest that would be experienced on the Sabbath day. You'll remember that on the seventh day of creation, God rested. And then the fourth of the Ten Commandments, when we looked at the Ten Commandments, was to keep the Sabbath day holy. And we talked there about the fact that, that we are no longer under the Sabbath regulation, that we don't worship on the seventh day of the week. We worship on the first day of the week. We worship on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We follow the pattern of the early church, but many of the principles, the thoughts, and the ideas about, about the Sabbath day uh, should find their way into how we think about the Lord's day. As I mentioned in Exodus chapter 20, Moses wrote, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a special day. It's one day in seven Every day belongs to the Lord, but this day belongs to the Lord in a way that is maybe distinct than the other six days belong to the Lord. Every day is his day, but one day stands preeminent and, pre, and uh, predominant over every other day. Uh, this is how the Lord Jesus Christ lived. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. From his earliest days, Mary and Joseph 
would gather together with the people of God in the synagogue and they would worship God on the Sabbath day. That's how Jesus was brought up. And then as a young man, it was his custom, his pattern, his habit to go into the synagogue and to receive instruction and to be engaged in worship on the Sabbath day. And then as he began his ministry, he launched his ministry. He launched it by preaching a sermon in Nazareth on, on the seventh day. On a day when we are traveling 90 miles an hour, Monday through Friday, and we don't slow down a bit, it seems, on Saturday, it's easy for us then to think, Sunday should be my day. Sunday is my day to catch up. Sunday is my day to clean. Sunday is my day to mow the lawn. Sunday is my day to kick back and, and relax. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily inappropriate things. But first and foremost, the absolute pinnacle of Sunday is congregational worship. The people of God gathered together in the Spirit of God to worship the Son of God. That is what is of most importance. That's why the author of Hebrews put it this way. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. After a long day on Saturday, we get up, we're dragging, and in many, many ways we're unprepared for Sunday. And, and some of that has to do that the church hasn't helped teach us, instruct us, guide us. That Sunday isn't like every other day. Sunday is the Lord's day. And it may mean going to bed a little bit earlier on Saturday night. Asking God to give us the energy and the strength and the vitality and the enthusiasm to get up on Sunday morning as if we were going to the best place on earth to do the most wonderful and exciting thing humanly imaginable, and that is worshiping together, serving one another, and listening to the instruction of the Word of God. Evangelical leaders are, are greatly concerned about the decline in church attendance. It's very, very evident that the evangelical church is shrinking, and, and usually we attribute it, attribute it to the secularization of society, that society is the reason for the decline in, in the number of church, uh, of church attendance. When studies now are coming out and showing it is not the secularization of society that is the cause of the decline in church attendance, it is the it is the lessening faithfulness of God's people in regularly attending. Several years ago, the average Christian attended church 1.98 times a month. Now, the halo effect that was, that was revealed in that study was, if you were to ask those people, are you regular faithful church attenders with all integrity and honesty of heart? They would say, yes, we are. But the statistics bore out the average church attender 
attends church just under two times a month. We did this study in our own church a number of years ago, and as we, were, we told you, we were at somewhere just under three, 2.98 or 2.89. Uh, the number slips my mind right now. Just under three. We, we, we live in, a, in an age where gathering together as the people of God on the Lord's day doesn't hold the relevance that it once held. And we're going to see this not only in the present, in our own lives, but in the lives of our children. Neil McQueen is a noted researcher on statistics related to church life. And several years ago, he engaged a very important study and listened to the institutions that were involved in this study related to church attendance, declining church attendance, and its effects on children. Duke University, Indiana University, the University of Michigan, the Center for Disease Control, Barner Research Group, Gallup Research Group, the Pew Research Group, and the National Institute for Healthcare Research. Most of these are not bastions of evangelical orthodoxy. Uh, but they, they did a significant, massive study on the effects of, a declining, ch- of declining church attendance on, on children. And the benefits on children when their families are regularly engaged in congregational worship. Uh, Let me just go through some of these for you. He mentions in this study that when children are taken to church on a regular basis, not dropped off, but taken to church on a regular basis, they live much healthier lives emotionally. That is, they come back from seasons of depression 70% more quickly. That's stunning. When children are taken regularly to church, they are more socially adaptable. When children are taken regularly to church, they are far more likely to avoid alcohol abuse, far more likely to avoid drug abuse, far more likely to not be engaged in premarital sexual activity, far more likely not to engage in binge drinking in college, far more likely to attend church, in fact, twice as likely to attend church than children who are only taken to church sporadically. Those are, those are astounding statistics. Uh, I could dig into the, into the weeds of it a little bit more uh, graphically, but, but I think you get the idea. I praise God for the parents in this congregation. We have a a small army or maybe a large army of parents who are absolutely committed to attending and celebrating with the people of God, the Son of God, week in and week out. 
Now we need to understand as well that that when when these things when these things take place, they aren't a guarantee that children will be saved. That is having daily quiet times as a family or, or family devotions, gathering together with the people of God on a regular basis. Uh, those don't guarantee our children will be saved. That's why we do all that we can do for the glory of God, by the grace of God, and the strength of the Spirit of God. And then we fall on our knees and we pray, God, save my child. Only you can turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Only you can cause them to be born again by the Spirit of God. Take the truth they hear and use it in their lives. Uh, But I think you see... Uh, the point that I'm, the point that I'm making, that the more we expose them to the people of God, the more we expose them to other people who love God, it extends their relationships. It allows others to speak into their lives. Uh, many of you in here have have teenagers that are being taught in uh, in our youth Bible fellowship groups. You have children that are being taught in their children's Bible fellowship groups. And if you're like me, I'm stunned and amazed at the quality of people that are pouring into them. And what they're hearing is not things that are contrary to what we believe. That is, our children are in some settings, some situations that are being told the very opposite of what we are instructing them about faith and morality they're being instructed and, being, and our words are being affirmed by those who are teaching them. It's like an exclamation point because sometimes children just need to hear it from someone else other than mom or dad. And so there is this expansiveness, this relationships that allow others to speak into the lives of, of children. And so I think you you see the, the point that I'm making here. Well, I want you to notice a third idea with me. The third idea is this. Uh, Moses gives a warning to heed. Uh, beware of the intoxicating allurement of idolatry. Let me read verse 13 and then and tell you what my thoughts are about it. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. And do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Israel was to have an exclusive allegiance to God. In a polytheistic world, Israel stood out like a shining light in the midst of religious darkness because of its monotheism. They believed in the one true and living God. Every other God was a false god. And they worshipped idols made of clay and stone and carved from wood. But Israel worshipped the one true God, the the invisible God who sat on heaven's throne. The problem was they were easily pulled away. We'll we'll see in just a few chapters how while Moses is meeting with God on on Mount Sinai, they are constructing a golden calf to worship because they're uncomfortable not being like the other nations. Uh, We live in a world that is not worshiping stones, 
but worshiping automobiles and worshiping bank accounts. It's easy for the things of this world which, which inundate our world to not become intoxicating to us. It doesn't, happen, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens a little bit at a time. And we find ourselves, if we're not careful, worshiping false gods, not, not like Mormonism or the Jehovah Witness or Islam or Hinduism, but the gods of 21st century Western civilization, like affluence and leisure and so many others. And, and the amazing thing is it is, an, it is the most horrible trade-off we could possibly make. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when the infinite, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily satisfied. Philip Ryken, the, the president of Wheaton College, wrote this, to identify your own idols, ask questions like these. What things take the place of God in my life? Where do I find my significance and my confidence? What things make me really angry? Anger usually erupts when an idol gets knocked off the shelf. Uh, we live in a world filled with idolatry and we don't naturally want to chase after those things. But what we find is they subtly lure us away. It's not something that we wake up one day and we just decide, I'm not going to make time for God. That I'm going to be a 1.98 attending Christian. We, we don't wake up like that one day. And Satan knows it doesn't make any sense to try and convince us to become like that. He does it subtly, he does it incrementally, he does it a, a little bit at a time, and, and he does it in a way that we don't even realize that it's happening. And all of a sudden, Sunday belongs to me. Sunday is my day. I work hard five days a week and I run errands on Saturday. Sunday's got to be my day. No, it's God's day. It's the Lord's day. It's the day where the people of God gather together in the spirit of God to worship the Son of God for the glory of God. It's his day. We need to make time for God above all other things. 
And although we may be going 90 miles an hour because we've got an army of children we're taking care of, we've got a very heavy responsibilities on our jobs or we're working a job and going to school. There's nothing we can do about any of that. We've got to make a living. If we've been called to go to school, we're going to school, whether it's U of L, UK, Southern Seminary, uh, Boyce College, uh, one of the other local institutions, Sullivan University. But don't allow God's day to be pushed to the side or you will have that hollow look in your eyes. Your, your soul will be emaciated. Your body will be tired and rightfully so because the load is heavy, but your soul will be empty. Well, let me give you a fourth thought. The fourth thought is this. Don't forget what God has done as an incentive to love and serve him. Don't forget what God has done for us as an incentive to love and service. In this particular passage, verses 14 through 19, he's going to recount three pilgrimage festivals. These seem odd to us because we're not familiar with ancient Jewish worship. But God established three pilgrimage festivals where eventually it would be to Jerusalem where all of the men in particular, but at times the, the entire family would, would, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Three times a year, God set forth these pilgrimage festivals. Let me, let me begin reading in verse 14. Look with me in verse 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. And so he's wanting to remind them. He's wanting them to be reflecting on the fact that God had acted powerfully on their behalf. And so on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was tied to the Feast of Passover, at this particular feast, their minds and their hearts were to go back to that great Exodus event. Memory is a wonderful thing when we remember the right things. And it can spur us and encourage us to be more than we, we desire to be when we are reminded of what God has done for us. So, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was tied to the Feast of the Passover, every year they would think back and they would think, God brought Egypt to its knees. God set a captive people free. There's nothing God can't do. So as they gather together as a family around the, around the Passover meal, and then for the following week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there would be special meals that would be eaten as well. They would be recounting it and their children would be hearing it and hearing it over and over year after year. Mom and dad would hear it as they recounted it year after year. And then we'd come to believe there's nothing he can't do. There's nothing impossible with God. If God could set a captive people free by taking the strongest military might in the ancient world and bringing them to their knees, there's nothing God can do. And that infuses the soul with energy. The spirit is strengthened with faith. 
And although we may be physically tired from a busy season of life, there's not a hollowness to our eyes. Our eyes sparkle with the brilliance of the redemption of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the feast of harvest. Sometimes this is called the feast of weeks. In the New Testament, it's called the feast of Pentecost. Of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. And so as they gather together and they come to Jerusalem, they bring their best, their first fruits. Also the feast of ingathering, which is the feast of tabernacles at the end of the year. So they're to bring their best at the feast of harvest, the the grain and the the wheat. And and then the feast of tabernacles at the end, the olives and the the grapes. And and particularly the feast of tabernacles. The feast of tabernacles was was a feast, we've talked about it before, where they lived in makeshift booths, makeshift tents, all around Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And at night, as they sat around the fire as a family, they would, the children would hear described from mom and dad because spiritual conversations were a part of that world. Spiritual conversations were a part of that culture. It wasn't odd and awkward and, and difficult because it had just been woven into the fabric of their lives, particularly by these feasts. How God brought forth water from a rock while they were traveling in the wilderness. That's why they called it the Feast of Booths. They were living in tents like the children of Israel did as they were wandering in the wilderness. And how God had provided manna from heaven every day, enough for every day. For six days, they were to collect and on the Sixth day, twice as much would be provided so that they would not collect on the Sabbath day. And week in and week out, month in and month out, God gave water, God gave, God gave protection from the enemy. Uh, God gave food for them to eat and, and their hearts were inspired. Who can't believe in a God like this? Who can't trust in a God like this? There's nothing that God can't do. He can call me anywhere and he will provide for me. He can call me anywhere and he will sustain me. He will empower me to do his will, his way, and his time. And all of this would have been resonating in the minds of the children as their parents engaged them. It's very similar to Christmas and and Easter for us. We don't make pilgrimages to particular places. We, We make our pilgrimage right here. And so we gather together on Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we focus our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And our children are among us. And we're singing songs about the cross. We're grieving the fact that in his body, he bore our sin on that cross. And we're reminded on Good Friday, it wasn't Good Friday for him. And we leave and we depart with our hearts knowing how wicked and sinful we were and how much we needed a Savior. Then we we come back on Sunday morning 
And on Sunday morning, we, we sing the great songs extolling the power of God and the resurrection of Christ and, and the, the, the darkness that clouded our hearts on Good Friday is lifted on Resurrection Sunday. And our children hear us sing strong, bold, effective songs that battle the forces of hell as we extol the virtues of the risen Christ. And then we think about Christmas. At Christmas, we gather together for our large Christmas congregational worship service. Then we gather together on Christmas Eve in what now is effectively we've grown to two services. And we gather together to extol God's greatness in that he invaded human history in the person of his son. That Jesus Christ came and lived among us. Jesus Christ became one of us. He who had no sin became a human being to bear our sin. And we're reminded on the Christmas season that it's not about tinsel and wrapping. It's about a coming Savior. And so these, these national festivals were intended to be means by which the people of God could constantly be reminded of the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God himself. Well, let me take these last couple of moments and, and sum it up with just a couple of final thoughts. You know, the Old Testament sabbatical rest anticipates the greater rest that comes through Christ's defeat of evil in this world. That is, what God did in creation and God required in the Ten Commandments was pointing toward a greater Sabbath rest. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is when they entered the promise, the promised land, if that were the culmination, if that was the completion, where they would establish themselves in a land flowing with milk and honey, if that were the end, then Joshua would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, most of mankind is spiritually tired because they're trying to work their way into a right relationship with their God if they believe in God at all be it Islam or Hinduism, be it Mormonism or Jehovah Witness, they're, they're working, they're striving, they're trying as best they can to do the best they can to make themselves right with God. And it's impossible because we are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. God has accomplished for us all that we need in Christ Jesus. And to receive him by faith means we rest in that salvation. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Trust in 
Christ. Rest in him. Do you know the rest of soul that comes from knowing that you need not work to earn your salvation? Do you know that rest today? Most of us know that rest. We just need to be reminded of it. Some of us have never experienced that rest. And we thought, well, you know, I've got to quit doing this and start doing that. It doesn't matter how much you quit doing, and it doesn't matter how much you start doing. Salvation is not something that you do. It's something that you receive by faith. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're all going to stand and sing together. It may be that you'd like to talk to someone about your spiritual life this morning. Uh, Maybe you'd like to talk to someone about the process for church membership. We'll invite you to come forward, speak to one of our staff members. We won't embarrass you in the front. We won't leave you languishing. We'll talk with you in a place privately and, and confidentially, but we would love to talk with you if we can be of assistance to you. It may be as we stand and we join together in song in just a moment, you will praise God in your heart, in your, in your own thoughts. God, thank you. You've given us a day. Thank you for a, the day that you raised Christ from the dead. Thank you that on this day we gather together with the people of God to worship the Son of God. Thank him for today and for all that it means to those of us who know him through Christ. Would you stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the good gift of the Lord's day. We thank you that it is a day that is filled with with worship and service. And rather than being a day that is wearisome and bothersome, it's a day of celebration and exhilaration. So Father, help us to think rightly about this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.